Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. We're currently working our way through the Bible. When we're looking at wisdom literature, uh, we, the primary point of wisdom literature is to understand what is a good life and how to live it. Uh, and I'm a little jealous of Tiffany. She got to do Proverbs, and everyone loves the Proverbs. They're like those little fortune cookies, right, that you, that you get to look at and go, yeah, that makes sense. That's bright. That's smart. I want to be like that. I want to live like that. Um, over probably every three or four years, um, as part of my morning devotionals, I like to read the book of Proverbs, like on the first day of the month, Proverbs 1, the second day of the month, Proverbs 2, because there's 31 Proverbs, and it works really nicely for that, and it's a, a really nice way to start my day. Uh, but it's just one of those kind of things that you just get really energized when you get to read about all the good things in Proverbs. Um, but there can be a little bit of a problem with the Proverbs, and with wisdom literature in general, because... Well, let me, let me explain it this way. I have a friend, um, great person, great Christian, um, and she likes to be smart. She likes to be wise. And so Proverbs are some of her favorite things. Uh, but way back in the early 2000s, um, she and her husband were living out of the state, and they bought a house uh, because that's the smart thing to do. Everyone in 2006 and 2007 was saying, if you can, get into a house while you can. The prices are going up. They're always going to keep going up. This is the smart move. And then 2008 happened, and they had to leave where they were living. They moved back to the Seattle area. The house they'd bought was now underwater, right? So they were actually in debt. Um, they actually had lost money in the process. And to be really honest, it really shook her faith. And you would hear her constantly saying things like, I did everything right. I did everything I was supposed to do. I did th- the way that God, you know, and yet here we are, we can't afford to buy a house. And it wasn't until just a couple years ago that they were able again to buy a house. And this can be an issue with the Proverbs and wisdom literature in general, because they can make us pragmatic. They can, they can reduce us down to, I want to get this, so I'm going to do that. And again, in lots of areas of life, that's fine, that's great, and that's good. But in the big picture of things, it can mess with us. We can get our priorities out of whack. Wisdom does not guarantee success. You can do all the right things, and things can still go sideways. We want to avoid this kind of temptation to pragmatism. We're not going to say that the Proverbs aren't true. We're not going to say that wisdom literature is useless. But we're going to recognize that if we just have that kind of mechanical, if you do this, then you'll get this kind of an approach, there's going to be a problem. Ecclesiastes, the book we're looking at today, is still concerned with how to have a good life, what a good life looks like, but you need to know it before you even start reading the book of Ecclesiastes that it's intentionally messing with your head. Okay? The book of Ecclesiastes, if you are reading through the book of Ecclesiastes and you don't go, say what? Wait, wait a minute. There are so many contradictions in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, again, we usually pretty it up in my profession. They're paradoxes. No, they're, they're contradictions. He'll say one thing and then he'll turn right around and say the other. And you're just like, what is going on here? 
We need to recognize that he is messing with our head. That, now this isn't, there are some biblical commentators that look at this book and say, this is irrational. This is incoherent. This is incomprehensible. This guy was smoking something. No one ever actually says that in a commentary, but that's what they're thinking. But he's not incoherent. He's not being irrational. If anything, he's being super consistently rational. What the writer, what Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to see is he's using these paradoxes, these contradictions, to help us see the limitations of wisdom. It's trying to help us see that there comes a point where you can't go any further, that wisdom itself has limitations, especially human wisdom. It's trying to force us to stop and think so that we don't put our faith, our trust, our hope in wisdom. And by using human wisdom, he uses human wisdom against itself to say, you see where you're stuck. You see where you're left. Don't go there. There's this great quote by a guy named, and I'm going to say it wrong because I don't speak French, Georges Bernanos. I try to do a French accent. I don't speak French. Now, but I love this quote because it captures what Ecclesiastes is trying to get at. In order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. What Ecclesiastes is trying to help us see is that we shouldn't put our faith, our trust, our hope in anything but God. The ultimate good life is one that's lived where we put our hope in God, not our hope in success, not our hope in wealth or fame, even being good, not even in being wise. This is, this is the dirty little secret that sometimes doesn't get mentioned. Um, King Solomon, who's the wisest guy, right? The end of his life isn't so good. He falls into idolatry. Um, and, I, and I want that to sink in for a second because that's kind of in, in the background here as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, that, that, that a life that's just lived with human wisdom, that with wisdom alone, can still go off the rails. We need to read the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole in order to really get that notion. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 12 chapters. Okay, I wouldn't do that to you. Some of you are going, oh yeah, we were here last time you spoke, Jack. You just might be tempted to go there, but I'm not going to. I'm going to take us through just a couple of key passages Constantly looking back to this larger theme of Ecclesiastes to help us kind of see what he's doing in the book of Ecclesiastes to help us realize that we need to put our hope in the one that won't deceive. We need to put our hope in God and not in anything else. Now, to help us, to help us, to help us with our first verse, I, I want to take a little bit of a detour. Um, and I want to take you back to the summer of 1981. The summer of 1981 is between my, uh, my junior and senior year in high school. And I found myself over in Pullman. Don't ask me why I'm in Pullman in the summer. Uh, but I was over in Pullman, Washington, and it was the week that Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. And I got to go see that movie in a college town. Which, you know, when you're in high school, college kids are just cool, right? But I'm in a college town, I get to go see this movie. And... It was wonderful. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. You've got this adventurous guy. He's smart. Um, he goes, he solves puzzles. He gets beat up. Um, he, I've got to tell you, the scene with the guy with the sword, right, um, where he just takes his gun and shoots the guy, the place went nuts. It just went nuts. It was an absolutely fantastic experience. 
Um, but years later, there was this huge argument on the internet about Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because someone pointed out that nothing Indiana Jones did mattered. <laughs> right? So he goes through all these fights, he does all these puzzle solving, he gets beat up, you know, there's this one point where he goes, where it doesn't hurt? It doesn't hurt here and it doesn't hurt here. He goes through all of this, but at the end, nothing really mattered. I mean, you think about it. If Indiana Jones um, hadn't found the Ark first, the Nazis would have still found it because they were digging in the area. And they'd have still gone to the island and they still would have died. And then the Ark would have just been stuck on this abandoned island. It would have just been lost in a different place. As it was, the Ark gets lost in a government warehouse, which is probably even more lost than it was when it was under the sands of Egypt. Right? So it just doesn't... Now, other people will argue, but no, no, everything he does matter. But, but this idea of, of it really didn't matter. All the pain, the suffering, the smarts, it just didn't matter. And that brings us to Ecclesiastes. Now, in verse 1 in Ecclesiastes, there's a little prologue where they introduce us to this guy, this smart guy called the teacher. And then in verse 2, we have the first statement of the teacher. And the teacher says this, futile, futile laments the teacher, absolutely futile, everything is futile. That's from the New English translation. Uh, if you grew up with the King James like I did when I was a little kid, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Um, this, this, by the way, is also futile, futile, uh, is the very last thing the teacher says in the book of Ecclesiastes. So at the end, as he's summarizing everything, he's going to go right back to the start and say, everything is futile. Nothing matters. Uh, the word that we get translated in this particular translation is futile, uh, habel in Hebrew. Um, there's different kind of ways to translate it. This is an interesting word, and, and the, the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, is using it in a very poetic, interesting kind of way. Uh, it can mean futile. It can mean vanity in kind of that old sense of of when someone's staring into a mirror admiring themselves, they're not really doing anything. Um, the word can be translated as meaningless. The NIV translates it that way, for example. Uh, you could also translate it as worthless, pointless, useless, nonsense. You, some translations go back kind of the etymology of the word and they try to tie it to smoke. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's, it's a vapor. That's another one of the words that's kind of in the background. Um, in fact, there's, there's probably a callback. I said the Hebrew word is Abel. Abel. Um, remember the story of Cain and Abel way back in the beginning? Uh, Abel. He's the guy who does everything right. His brother kills him. There's no children. There's nothing left. And again, remember in ancient societies, to not have kids, that was kind of the point. Um, so, so Abel's life ends up being meaningless, pointless. He just ends up being a story of caution for the rest of us with Abel and Cain. So Ecclesiastes is using all this kind of this big nebulous word cloud of all these kind of vacuous, meaningless... Are you getting the point? Are you getting that feeling? Right? Of just, ugh, everything is just, bleh. That's the highly technical way that we put it. Okay? You get the idea, though. Nothing really matters. Now, what... Ecclesiastes, what the teacher's not saying. He's not doing the Buddhist thing. 
He's not saying that all of this is unreal. He's not saying that it's all just an illusion in that sense. No, the teacher knows it's real. It's just that it's all pointless. It's futile. It's nonsense. Now, remember, Ecclesiastes is messing with us. Never forget that while you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. There's an irony here. If everything is futile, if everything is meaningless, if everything is pointless, then why is the teacher telling us anything? Hmm. There's something going on deeper than just the surface level in this book. And we cannot forget that, or otherwise we'll get all kinds of weird and crazy ideas. Okay? This is the first clue that we're getting that there's something going on here that's not just at the surface level. This is not like the Proverbs in Stitch in Time Saves Nine kind of stuff. There's something deeper going on here. Okay. Let's drop down a couple of verses to verse 9. This is a hugely famous verse. Probably if you haven't heard any other verse in the book of Ecclesiastes, you've heard the phrase at the end of this verse. And this verse causes a ton of confusion. But again, that's okay, because remember, Ecclesiastes is messing with our heads. All right? In Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9, it says this. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. What's going on here? <laughs> okay? So for us in particular, culturally... Um, the first thing that we look at, nothing new, nothing new, are you kidding? My mother turned 98 this summer. She was born in 1925, and when I think about the things, in her lifetime, jet engines were developed, nuclear power, we've gone to the moon, there's all kinds, of, I can, you know, I don't have it on me right now, but I can just pull up my smartphone and say, what do you mean there's nothing new under the sun? What's going on? Well, that's because we're thinking primarily in terms of invention and technology. I mean, I was looking at little baby Eden this morning. Here's a new critter right there, Eden, right? <laughs> so, so, what? Is the Bible lying to us here? By the way, a, a lot of really... Um, there are some very smart and very deep atheists, but there's also a lot of really dumb atheists. You say, the Bible is easy to contradict. It says there's nothing new. Oh, stupid Christians. Okay, no, there, there's smart atheists who know that's not what's going on here. But we need to recognize that this is not what he's talking about. You know, by the way, he's also not saying what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. He's not saying that 10,000 years ago, someone invented a smartphone and we just lost it in Atlantis. Okay? He's not saying... And he's not even making the statement... Sometimes people want to look at this passage and make a connection to uh, some of the Eastern religions and guys like Nietzsche that want to say that all of history is cyclical. So that after... 10,000 years, I will be standing right here in front of you again, boring you just this exact same way, saying the same words. He's not saying that either. What the teacher is talking about here is the human condition. He's talking about the facts of human life, the big picture of how we experience human life. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, it's just the same. What things are like here under the sun. That's the last part of that phrase. And that's an important aspect. That things are the same. There is nothing new under the sun. It's an important phrase and it's an important qualifier that we can easily overlook. 
This phrase, under the sun, is found almost 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Nowhere else in the Bible. It's unique to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, when I say that, I want to keep, I want to remind you of something that I think was mentioned by by Duane a few weeks back. Wisdom literature, the kind of things that Proverbs, Job, um, these Psalms, these were common kinds of things in the ancient Near East. Most cultures of the time, of the place, had something like the Proverbs, something like the Psalms. So, So this isn't something which is unique to just Israel. In fact, some of the Proverbs that we have in our book of Proverbs, um, you can find very clear parallels in other cultures' literature. Because people can look around and say, wow, it's smarter to do this than to do that. It's just kind of common sense. Uh, But Proverbs kind of encapsulates that for us. Other cultures can see that too. Um, But when the teacher uses the phrase under the sun, this very non-Hebrew way of talking about things, it's, 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 again, under heaven is a more typical way that Hebrews would have talked about everything that is. Uh, the phrase under the sun in particular gets associated with Egypt. And so Egypt was, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in, in the ancient Near East. So there's a little bit of a signaling that the teacher is doing. He's talking about wisdom. He's talking about things in light of how folks like the Egyptians might have thought about wisdom and being smart and how the kinds of things that are open to everybody, if we're just going to be human, look around. He constantly uses the phrase, I looked and I saw. He's a very much of an empiricist. He's very much a, okay, I'm going to look at how things are. I'm going to think this through. It's better to do this. That's what he's doing. And lots of cultures do that. Lots of places outside of the Bible are able to look around. That's why I can learn math from somebody, whether they're a Christian or not. Because two plus two is four. Whether you believe in Jesus or not. Okay? The teacher is speaking from the human perspective. This is a signal to us that what he's doing, he's primarily talking about from a human perspective, this is how things look. There ain't nothing new. If we confine ourselves and look at the human situation, we see the same old, same old. It's the same song, second verse. Over and over again, we see oppression, we see injustice, we see the righteous dying prematurely, we see he who dies with the most toys wins, and there's a lot of evil people who die with a lot of toys. I'm paraphrasing, that's not actually in Ecclesiastes, but the same idea is there. Um, The the big one that he constantly goes to, his his trump card, if you will, um, Ecclesiastes, when push comes to shove, where the teacher always goes is, We're all going to die. If you grew up around my age, there's an old song by Kansas, Dust in the Wind, All We Are is Dust in the Wind. If you're a little younger than I am, you know that song from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure when Bill is (laughs) is philosophizing with Socrates, Dust in the Wind. It's a riff off of Ecclesiastes 3.12. Okay? Um, But you think about it. Someone, Alexander the Great, I would love to just be known as Jack the Not-So-Bad, but this is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquers most of the known world at the time, and then he dies, and it all falls apart. You work your entire life to the bone, building up a great business, 
And then you die and your grandkids inherit and they blow it all in crypto and coke, right? I mean, it's just, this, this happens over and over again. Uh, we see the same kinds of problems. I, I used to have a friend in college that when he was trying to get us to stop studying, he would say something like this, Jack, in 200 years, is it really going to matter whether you got an A or a B in this class? That's what the teacher is saying. If this is the situation, if this is the human condition, that no matter what happens, we all end up at the same place. You push this argument far enough, we're stuck. It's all futile. This ends in despair. But people can't live in despair. We can't live in futility. We can't live in meaninglessness. So we try and find ways to give meaning, to give purpose, to give worth to our lives. Now, there's the usual suspects, right? Um, and Ecclesiastes goes through a bunch of these. You've got pleasure. First two, chapter 2, he talks about eh, and we all know that ends badly. Um, you've got great works, kind of the Alexander the Great kind of a thing. I think he's probably thinking primarily in terms of the pyramids, right? But the pharaohs are still dead, right? Wealth, status, all of these kind of things. Um, Ever seen anyone in your life try to give meaning to the world by their wealth or by their status or by pleasure? See, there's nothing new under the sun, friends. What goes around comes around. There's also some unusual suspects that Ecclesiastes, the teacher, brings up. Um, the one that kind of surprised me the most when I was rereading was righteousness. In chapter 8, he says, yeah, righteousness. It can't get you there either. Following all the rules, nobody is ever good enough. Somebody is going, everyone is going to stumble at some point. You can't find meaning by, by just doing everything morally correctly. It just doesn't work. There's another unusual suspect, and I, I'm going to take a minute to unpack this one because this can really throw people when they first read Ecclesiastes. It's found down in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, the teacher goes after women. And lots of people point and say, ah, you see the patriarchy in the text. Jews, Christians, they all hate women. Again, that's a surfacey reading. In the ancient world, like in Ephesus, the cult of Diana, Artemis, as she's known, um, they had a belief that all the evil in the world came about when men were introduced into the picture. The idea of toxic masculinity is not a new invention. There were some people running around in the ancient world that wanted to say, no, the problem is guys, biological males. If we just had all the women, everything would be fine. And let's face it, who doesn't love their mama? If there's any place where you're going to find perfection and warmth and acceptance, and it's going to be your mom. And Ecclesiastes says, yeah, no. Even femininity, even the female of the species is going to not suffice. I mean, he's ragging on people all the way through. He's just wanting to make, he makes that one really clear for us. So don't think that Ecclesiastes is some kind of male chauvinist pig because of that text. He's given it to everybody. And it's just one more of those areas where we're going to go, ah, my mother's love, that's what I can count. Nope. 
That's not going to work either. And by the way, he doesn't go there with that particular passage, but she's going to die someday. Then where are you? Right? So since nothing ever changes, everything is futile, it's pointless, it's worthless, whether it's pleasure, whether it's work, whether it's righteousness, even wisdom, he starts off the list actually by saying, wisdom, yeah, doesn't work. It's the very first thing he does before he gets to any of the other ones. Right there in chapter 1. Are you feeling encouraged this morning? <laughs> okay. I mean, this, is, this is some heavy sledding, right? But remember, the teacher isn't done messing with our heads. He throws in almost every time when he's gone on this whole thing about things being futile, worthless. He then turns around and says something like this. Because... Sometimes, worthless is not worthless. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, he says it this way. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Something like this is said repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes. Just when you're feeling like there's nothing worth anything, it's all futile, it's all worthless... He turns and says, oh, but there's something worthwhile. Uh, it's all worthless, but some things are worth something. Several places, he goes into a whole list of things. It's better to do this. It's better to be wise than to be a fool, even though you're both going to die. Uh, down in chapter 7, he lists a whole bunch of things that it's better, it's more worthwhile to be this than to do this. Are you feeling that tension? Some things are worth more than others, but everything under the sun is worthless. It's really common for people to say, so what Ecclesiastes is telling us is some kind of chastened hedonism or chastened existential, where it sucks, but do the best you can. <laughs> yeah, eat some, drink some, work, enjoy it, because that's all you got. It's the only game in town. Um, and there can be some truth to that, and that's where a lot of, of philosophies end up. Like the French existentialists sitting smoking unfiltered cigarettes, you know, in France in, 19, in Paris back in the 1950s. But at the end of this verse points to something. It points to kind of an escape valve. And it's one of the interesting things. God is not mentioned that many times in the book of Ecclesiastes. But when it is, it's usually associated with something like this, this... There's something good here. And this is the hint that the real solution is going to be lying with God. We need to look beyond what is under the sun. If we look at things under the sun, if we just limit ourselves to the human perspective, we're going to end up right back where we started with futile, futile. Everything is futile. That's the last thing the teacher says in the book, but there is a postscript. The voice changes, just like there was a prologue where someone says, there's this smart guy named the teacher. The last few verses are a postscript. The voice changes. There's someone else talking. Yes, if we limit ourselves to the human perspective, everything is futile. But if we look at something above the sun, God, things look different. In chapter 12, verses 13 to 14, it says, Now, 
all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And again, this squeaks out during the teacher's teaching that that there's this God thing going on here, but this is making it explicit. We put our hope in God, not in our success, not in our righteousness, not even in our wisdom. We look to God for meaning, for purpose, for worth, for hope in our lives. The truly good life is the one where we seek God, not the good life. Have you guys ever run into somebody who wants to be happy and that's their goal? I want to be happy. I want to be happy. Want... And they're miserable. It's called the, uh, the um, hedonist paradox in philosophy circles. That somehow the way human beings are wired, if happiness is our goal, we seem to undercut ourselves. We have to do other things and then we feel happy. This hedonist paradox, uh, this, this dilemma, is a, is a real thing and many cultures have recognized it. This verse, two verses here, um, really hasn't said anything we didn't find in Proverbs. It really boils down to fear God, obey God, trust God. But now we hear it in a different way than we might have if we just read Proverbs, especially if we're reading Proverbs in that pragmatic, oh, I want to have a good life, so I should do this. Some of you are looking at me like, okay, not following you here, Jack. True story, I'm on staff down at a church in Fresno, California back in the late 80s and early 90s. And our pastor comes to the staff meeting and says, we've got a little bit of a dilemma. Okay. Um, There is someone from the community who is not a believer in Jesus. He has not committed his life to Christ. He uh, does not do any of that. But he was raised in church. And because of stories in his family, in things in life, um, he truly believes that if he does not give 10% of his business income, that his business will not thrive. So this guy is sending us a tithe check. He picked us as far as I know at random. Do you see how this getting the, heart, the, the cart before the horse? We, we love God and we recognize that everything comes from Him and that's why we give. As opposed to, okay, I need to make more money and so I'm going to give this stuff to God then He'll owe me something. That's the temptation that sometimes we face with the Proverbs. Oh, I, I want to I have success. I want to have good kids. I don't want to have trouble with my kids so I'm going to follow these rules. As opposed to, I follow God Proverbs, all things considered, they're going to lead us correctly, but that's no guarantee. You can do everything right, and your kids can still go off the rails. You can do all the smart decisions, and your house can still be underwater. We follow God because He's God. We trust in God because He's God. We don't use God as a means to another end, even if that end is the good life. We love God and then we have a good life, even if we're poor. We love God, and we have a good life, even if 
things are gone sideways. We lived in Scotland for a while, they'd say pear-shaped. Ah, things have gone pear-shaped. Um, it's no longer a nice circle. We place God first. Now, I'm going to break out of the book of Ecclesiastes just for a minute here. Because I don't want to leave us there with just obey and trust and fear God. Because some of you, when we read the passage from Ecclesiastes, said there's nothing new under the sun, a little voice went off in the back of your head because you've read the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah talks about hope and he actually uses the phrase new thing. By the way, Isaiah also uses the same word for futile. Um, so there's some... So, so I think Ecclesiastes is a little bit back in the mind of Isaiah and the prophecies that come in this book. Um, in chapter 43, 19, Isaiah says this as he's prophesying the word from God. See, I am doing... I'm a crier. Okay. <clears throat> Scene. Okay. Um, <laughs> see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. When we limit ourselves just to the human perspective and human wisdom, we're left with, okay, I'm going to fear God, I'm going to obey God, I'm going to trust Him. But Isaiah, speaking the word of God, which comes from heaven, which cuts through under the sun, he says, I'm going to do something new. And the rest of the book of Isaiah has these wonderful prophecies about how God is going to send a Messiah, a Savior, who will save his people. And even goes to the point in chapter 60, uh, 65, where he says, I am going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Amen. Everything is going to change. So right now, there's nothing new under the sun according to Ecclesiastes. When Jesus enters the world, something new happens. Remember I told you the teacher says, we're all going to die. And then Jesus is raised to eternal life. Even death doesn't get the final word. We believe, we are told that not only is Jesus raised from the dead, but that we will be raised from the dead. Death does not get the final word. In the new creation... There will be something new under the sun. There will be no more oppression. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more of the kinds of problems that we see repeatedly in this fallen world. That is the hope that we look forward to. That is the future that God is making for us. We are not trapped strictly and narrowly in the human kind of notion about the way things are because that's how they've always been. Some of the things Isaiah prophesied about have already happened. Jesus has come, lived, died, and rose from the dead. Some of the things that Isaiah prophesies are currently happening as we experience the foretastes of the new creation in our lives as we start lining up our lives with God's future. Some of these things are only going to come at the end, the big shebang, when everything is made new. That is the hope we have in Jesus. As we move into our prayer time this morning, I want you to think about the things in your life that just don't change.
the things that cause you to despair, the things that make you say, God, what are you up to? I want you to think seriously about that and pray and ask God to help you see how this isn't the end. Ask God to help you see how he sees the situation, what he might do that's new unto the sun with your situation. Please join me in prayer. Think about these things. What is it that causes you to despair? And what would God have you do to see? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Thank you for coming out this morning, and I hope that you've been encouraged to see what God can and is doing in the world. Let's end with our benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Go and live for Jesus this week in the hope and power of God.